Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Gavin Hood's new biographical drama, Official Secrets. The film tells the true story of Catherine Gunn, a British intelligence specialist who leaked information to the press about an illegal NSA spy operation designed to collect compromising information on UN Security Council members and blackmail them into sanctioning the 2003 invasion of Iraq. In addition to Official Secrets, Mr. Hood's credits include the feature films A Reasonable Man, Sotsi, Rendition, X-Men Origins Wolverine, Ender's Game, and Eye in the Sky, the movie for television Tough Trade, and the pilot and episodes of Breakout Kings. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Hood spoke with director Philip Noyce about filming official secrets. During their conversation, he discusses how he told the story of a different kind of whistleblower, the importance of directing bit parts to be the best they can be, and his belief that a restrained approach was the best way to tell the story. Okay, Gavin, how are you? Hi, Phil. Very well. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Philip, for being here. So let me see. We met uh, at a screening of Sotsi. Yes, we did. About yes. a, year, a year before it came out. <laughs> That's right. You, you were coming to shoot a film in South Africa. Looking for cast, as I recall. In fact, you cast one of my actors, my leading actress. Yes, and then I ran to the phone straight after the screening of this uh, DVD copy of your first cut and rang my agent here and said, you've got to, you've got to take this guy on. That's exactly what happened. He's and going so right to the, the top. Same agent. Yeah, a yeah, year yeah, later, you did. I did, I did. Thank you, Phil. Now, let's we go back a while. Yeah. No, I, I, I went with Steve Rabiner, bless him, who's... So it's a long journey for Catherine Gunn, but a long journey for you to this film too. I mean, you came here to Hollywood um, and met someone over at uh, New Line who wanted to finance... Uh, rendition. Rendition. Yeah. Uh, a remarkable film. Thanks. Um, and then you accepted the offer <laughs> to make Wolverine. Yes. Um, having, having, earned, having earned your freedom to make rendition and have it re released by Warner Brothers, um, then so, okay, that was a certain adventure for you in Sydney with... Uh, it was an adventure. I learned a lot. Let's just leave it at that. And the, I learned a lot, not all of it good. What did you learn and what? how did it lead you to this film? Because um, it's sort of a Catherine Gunn question in a way. Yeah, it is, I suppose. Um, did I get the memo? Um, it's so hard to answer that question without, you know, you, you, I, I had a great time shooting rendition with New Line. Um, they were really good to me. And I was used, as I know you know, because we both come from indie film, um, I was used to being the captain of my own ship. And I was... Hugh Jackman approached me for Wolverine. He's a lovely, lovely man. He'd loved Sotsi. He was really keen to have a strong performance director, and he flattered me into that. And what I wasn't prepared for were two things. One, that as a young director, I was not going to shoot any of the second unit action stuff. 
and I didn't. Peter McDonald shot all of that stuff, including all the fight scenes on that wretched tower at the end and everything. Um, and and that the strike would happen, <laughs> the WGA strike would happen. So we went down to Australia without a script, and we got script pages the night before, and during the making of that film, the entire concept that I'd signed on to do, which I could talk about if you want me to. No, um, don't talk no, too much about no, it. We'll get on but to but this it film. changed. Yeah, I'd rather get big. But just for the record, it changed because the title, it'll say it, everything. The title of the film I was going to make was Wolverine. And while we were in pre-production, Hugh came to me one day and said, have you noticed the title's changed on IMDb to X-Men Origins Wolverine? What do you think that means? I'm like, mate, you're the producer. What does that mean? You tell me what this means. And, um, and what it meant was that they were deciding that they would test various characters and the whole script went off on this other direction. And we would get pages the night before, literally. And I would sit with Hugh and go, what are we? And then we'd call and then he'd call Tom. And it was a difficult time. They decided they were going to put all these. So the concept so of that it, film what changed. What did it teach you so about what, the machine? Well, what, what, well, I was very clearly told at one point, Gavin, if you run next to the machine, you, these were the exact words. I won't say who said them, but it was a studio executive. You need to run beside the machine because if you get in front of the machine, it will crush you. It's kind of a good note. So there we go, Phil. So what I learned from that was a lot about visual effects um, in post. And, um, and, and I learned a lot about how not to make a film, meaning here's the most basic obvious thing, have a script. There's a good idea. You know, before you start. You also so. said to me in the canteen at Fox, you said you also learnt to trust your cinematographer, which you took to your next film, yeah. Ender's Game, uh, Don McAlpine, who shot with me yeah. two or three times. Yeah, and I love a great, Don. Great and Don guy. saved my, my sanity. I mean, to be honest, we joke about it. it was, you know how brutal these things yeah. can be. I so was, then you went on to Ender's Game. Yeah. And um, then... And and then, then then I found my way to Eye in the Sky. Right, so then you became Catherine Gunn. Yes, <laughs> I found my way home. Um, and, and it was an interesting thing for those younger directors out here who, you know, at that stage I was under a lot of pressure from agencies and people to stay in the, shall we say, big genre filmmaking world. And there was, there was a film that I was being asked to do and then Eye in the Sky. And it was... A moment when, frankly, I parted company with a certain agent because I was like, mate, I need... The this. agent I introduced you to? No, not oh, Steve. Okay. Steve had gone to UTN. I was working with someone else who's a lovely okay, man, but good. we had these very difficult conversations. I don't want to turn this into a quiz. It's, it's just as your career goes, you have this difficult conversation. And frankly, the conversation was, mate, if I do one more like this, I have no, none of the what brought me into this business sense of myself. That's a Catherine Gunn moment. It sounds, whatever it is. But I want to go make this Eye in the Sky movie. Well, there's no budget and it's never going to work. And, you know, nobody wants to listen to political arguments in a movie. And I don't know who's seen Eye in the Sky, but it was a little movie and Alan Rickman's great last movie. Great movie, great movie. Thank you, guys. And Helen Mirren was amazing in it. And it was a very, very, very tough shoot to make because the budget was considerably less. But... You went back to South I Africa? I went back to South Africa. We shot that entire movie in Cape Town, um... All of the visual effects were done by a local South African company, except for three drone shots that I used Digital Domain and my dear fr friends there um, who helped me with those very photoreal drone shots. Um, but I just felt like I was back working in a world that I was able to shoot every frame. There was no... 
um, pushed for a second unit director because there was no money. And so I felt a little more in control of my material. Right. And so that's the same on this little This little movie was harder. This movie right, was so you're thinking about yeah. what to do next. Yeah. You've, you've, you've made two studio pitches in a row. I guess End of the Game is a studio pitch. It was made in yeah, 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 yeah. but it was sold on yeah. to a studio. Um, then you've had the freedom that you got, you had on Sotsi. You went back to South Africa back to, my um, to, make, to make the next film, Eye in the Sky, a yeah. brilliant film about the future of warfare um, as it will be fought and is being increasingly it is. fought. I mean, we're in that zone. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, you are way ahead of the, of the curve there in terms of your use of miniature drones, those little. Yeah. Um, Insect drones and so yeah. on. That All of which none were being of developed which we right knew here about. in LA, actually. And yeah. That bird that you see in the film was actually made. There was a real one prototype made here. So um, then you're thinking what to do next, and the, one of your producers, I understand, mm. told you the story of Catherine. Yeah, so Jed Doherty, who had produced Eye in the Sky, who is a lovely man and great to be back in a world where there's no conflict and we're all making the same movie. And, um, and Jed called me up because we'd enjoyed working together, and he said, Hey, Gavin, have you ever heard of Catherine Gunn? And, I, you know, it's that moment where you think you should have because some, why is he asking? And I go, no, should I? He just Google Catherine Gunn, call me back. So I Googled Catherine Gunn, called him back two hours later, said, why have I not heard the story? He said, are you interested? Long story short, I went to London. I met with Catherine. I spent five days initially with her, working with her every day for five hours a day. I said, start at the beginning, tell me your story. I did the same with Martin Bright, the same with the other journalists who he introduced me to, and then ultimately with Ben Emerson, the lawyer that Ray Fiennes plays. That was an intimidating and fascinating experience. And I can talk more about that if you like, but um, that's, that's where that story came from. Well, um, there's obviously a journey there, a journey for you as about your own uh, uh, creative freedom. Yeah. Um, but also I was interested in watching the film, which I've seen two or three times now, actually third time today, um, that it's the most unadorned of your movies mm -hmm. in as much as it's sober. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Florian uh, uh, Hofmeister, uh, of course, came to prominence with uh, that wonderful use of, um, of um, uh, uh, filters for Great Expectations, yes, uh, the TV series that he made, made yeah. beautifully shot. But in this film, he doesn't seem to be using filters, it's just light. Yeah. There's not much movement of camera. Um, it's really about the acting and the story. It's almost like you're trying to develop a, a style that is in, in absolute lockstep with the honesty, the simplicity of the issue. Well, and thank you character. for putting it that way. No, that, thank you, Phil. You should. Um, I'm going to steal a lot of that. But yes, um, <laughs> that's very, You're very kind of it. you because you could you could argue that it is rather basically done. But it was it was exactly that. Firstly, there wasn't much money. There was less money than we had on Eye in the Sky. My shooting schedule was really tight. Thirty six days, right? I've got. Um, that's a lot nowadays. Yeah, I know. Well, that's true, actually. So. I felt bad as I said it. Um, but I had Ray Fiennes, for example, for six days. And we had to shoot everything with him in those six days, courtroom in the law offices and the stuff at the beach and the house. So you can't be too tricksy. But, but to your point, what I realized was that this was about a very pure 
frankly quite ordinary person. As a whistleblower, she's not really larger than life. She's not, you know, some of our whistleblowers, you feel like they're so beyond us. If it's Julian Assange, I mean, Julian Assange is a sort of institution to himself. Whatever you think of him, he ain't ordinary. Whatever you think of Edwin Snowden, he ain't ordinary. For me, what's so beautiful about the Catherine story is it could be you. It could be me. It could be any of us at work, doing our job, not particularly important in our job. Something lands on our desk and we go, hold on, my company, my studio, my Enron, my Wall Street firm is really doing something that isn't, doesn't feel right. This one thing, Catherine only leaked one memo. This one thing was a bridge too far to. And so for me it was, wait a minute, it's a very quiet hero. There's no fanfare. The damn script is really hard to structure because she doesn't make a big speech at the end. So for a long time, I wasn't sure if it was a good idea. And there was one studio I was working with initially that got quite frustrated at one point. We ended up parting company. Jed and I found, Jed found money elsewhere. And the funny story was there was a meeting, Jed and I, with an executive who said, look, guys, you know, we need more running down alleys. Can't someone throw a friggin' brick through her window? And when, you'll love this, when does she don her cape? That was literally the line. Like, give her the speech in the courtroom. Let her be the... And so this whole thing was like, well, these people are still very much alive. They had rejected an earlier version that had tried to follow these routes. And the only way I'm keeping these folks on board, Catherine, Martin, the other two journalists, and Ben Emerson in particular, is if I get their approval that I have followed the material facts of their story, or they're going to trash the film, in which case there is no marketing of this film. So that was an interesting challenge because I've never written a script with people who are still alive. Right. Yeah. So um, through all these movies that you've made since I'll see you've uh, used, except for Don McAlpine, the same uh, cinematographer twice, mm. you've changed your cinematographer, but you've kept three people with you. Yes. Um, Megan Gale, of course, the brilliant editor from yep. Johannesburg, yeah. and your two... Uh, um, uh, composers. composers. One of whom is here. Let's just give him a say hello. Where Where's Mark he? Killian? <laughs> there he is. There he is, Mark. <laughs> there he is. Mark Killian's done four films with me. Sorry, I have to give him a shout. Yeah, love it's, Mark. It's interesting because in this film, it's almost as if uh, the two composers were asked to write another script as well. Of course, I always think that com uh, the, the mu music is the invisible script. But whereas the camera is somber and, and the lighting is unadorned and and your directorial style is straightforward in the way it tells the story, totally in lockstep with the subject and the character. But those two gentlemen are, in a way, playing through a whole other mosaic. Yeah, I think maybe, and it's a very good observation. I mean, we started off with quite a sparse score. And we had a whole different concept for the score that was very sparse. And then you reach a point where, have I been too sparse? Have I, am I, am I verging on to documentarian approach. And, and so we elaborated on our score with much discussion um, at certain points. But you're very astute, Mr. Mr. Noyce. This is, you know, he zones in. We haven't had this conversation. He so hones in. But it, it was, for me, Philip, you know, you, you're very observant about it. I mean, the style that we took to the shooting, one thinks there is a restrained style. But here's what our strength was in that film. Kira Knightley's performance. Ray Fine's performance, Matt Smith's performance, 
my feeling was as I was working in the rehearsals, what I need to do as I work with Kira is make sure that my audience gets to see into those eyes, unadorned. The more I put Trixie lighting in here, the more I detract from just, so now I've got a 75 mil lens. I went, Florian, we were in on the fifth. I said, this is back off. I want to isolate her and look, and eyeline really tight to lens, playing literally to almost into lens at times, so I can just watch the, the cogs turning in this very nuanced and subtle performance. You know those moments before she decides to leak the memo, the moment before she goes to confess, there's like a 12 second tiny track on the 75 mil lens, and you just let Kira go through that beat, because that's what the story was about. The story wasn't about how clever am I. Or, so in a way, you, you're making a directorial choice. It's not like you're not there. You're saying our style is to be long-lensed on that face and let the actor drag this audience in. The more I try to be cool angles, and the more it's almost like draw attention to myself. So then you get into the end, you go, well, do I need to push the emotion a little more here musically? Or uh -huh. and Mark would say to me, the best thing about this composer is he says, mate, you don't need music here. You don't need me now. If I put music here, we had this conversation, music often tends to, to it, it doesn't have enough nuance, no offense, but it, it, you know, you're in the minor key, it's generating a certain feeling. But what's going on in Catherine is multiple things. So sometimes Mark would say, Gav, let's just get the music. We don't need to be here. Um, anyway, I'm, you and, get the point. And, and Megan, yeah. tell us about uh, your relationship. Well, well, um, Megan, uh, Megan Gill and I have worked together. Um, Megs and I have done, you know, almost every film, and I just, I just love working with Megan. I mean, I don't know if it's because it's a woman in the you room edit, with a she, man. You and bring her out here, scene. or she she came to take here. the film to Joburg? No, or? she. We did the post here, and she came and stayed here. She's done before, and um, on Eye in the Sky, we we edited some there, and then we came back here. So um, I'm very lucky that Megs is willing to pop over, and 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 she loves being here, but she still loves South Africa, so she goes back and forth. Um, but um, she's also a wonderful um, a sounding board because, for example, there's when, when the intelligence um, uh, investigator comes to see Kira at her home and basically is telling her that, you know, you can't speak to a lawyer, you, uh, you know, you, he has quite a long speech and you're naturally wanting to cut between the two. And Megan will say, let's just stay on Kira. Again, the cogs are turning, it's one lens, and then I think maybe I should have done a little more of a track in, but we're just sitting on her through this guy's long speech as she goes through the disbelief and the shock and then begins to harden and then says, basically, fuck you. You tell GCHQ I won't talk to a lawyer if they don't charge me. If they charge me, I'll talk to a lawyer. Tell that to GCHQ. And you let Kira do that work for you. Well, and that's back, an editorial decision. Come back to Kira in a moment, but uh, the big question I had, uh, given the shot of the real woman at the end was, why no blonde hair? Ah. Well, um, again, there's always a story. Um, so we were in rehearsals and wardrobe and costuming, and out come the wigs, and are we going to dye it? And the other wigs, and we're putting them on, and we're trying the glasses, and then is she going to do the nose? Because and, and Kira just said at one point, Gav, um, Everybody's talking about Kira Knightley and the blonde hair, and I just feel like audiences have no idea who Catherine is. And the last thing I want is for the audience to say, I don't like Kira with blonde hair. What do you think of Kira with blonde hair? Well, the glasses. Well, she did the. She said, if if I were, you know, Meryl Streep um, or Helen Mirren playing the Queen or Meryl Streep playing Maggie Thatcher, 
I really know, because those people are so well known, that I have to do an amazing impersonation of those people. But what's appealing, and free, free to disagree with this. There's no right answer here. I'm just telling you what happened with us. She just said, no one knows Catherine. And I so often have to do things in corsets and hairdos. I just want to let my hair down, pull on a pair of jeans the way Catherine did, and experience moment by moment what it might feel like for me, Kira, to be feeling these moments. I don't want to feel I'm trying to impersonate someone. It's making me feel awkward. Well, as a director, you now have an interesting problem, don't you? I mean, you either force the actor to go that way and say, I need your hair dyed, or you say, actually, that's a perfectly valid point. And in every screening we've ever done, I don't think anyone has ever asked us, no offense, Phil, um, and they may have thought it, because then we were deciding, do we show the real Catherine Gunn, who's blonde at the end? And we decided we would. Um, and it goes to my point, I think, about this could happen to any of us. We're not watching some larger-than-life hero who dons a cape at the end and does things more extraordinary. She's an ordinary person who does something extraordinary. But Kira was just going through the beats of, what if I were faced with this? How would I feel? So we work from the inside out, not the outside in. So um, how do you put a film like this together? Is it um, that you've got to get Akira Knightley to sign up? Yeah. Um, could you have made it with a lesser known profile actress? For less money, yes. For less money. <laughs> Probably. Um, I mean, um, you know, And did Rafe come it. after she joined? Yes. Rafe came after she joined. And, and how did you get her to join? I don't think it was any more complicated than sending the script to her agent. Um, I think the agent in London was particularly helpful. Um, because this is a story that's really well known in England. So Kira knows the story and, 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 and Rafe, and so they have quite strong passions about this because these were their politicians more than anything. So I think we were lucky in the sense that the subject matter was more familiar to them than perhaps it might be in America, and they felt strongly about the story. Um, and then once Kira came on, it was easy, as you know it always is, who's in place to talk to other agents with the actors that you want. So... Um Without giving away any official secrets, um, does that mean that Kira uh, signed on for a reasonable fee that was less than she might earn on a studio picture? I have no idea what Kira earns on a studio picture, but I imagine it is more. <laughs> okay. Well, you won't be prosecuted for that answer. That was a good dodge. <laughs> and how did you work with her? Um... She's extremely professional, totally prepared. I mean, on a film like this, as you know, this can sound really trite, but it's quite nice when the actors know their lines. You do, have, you, then you can work on the emotion and you can work on the, the scene. Um, so these British actors are amazingly prepared. I've worked with actors who come on and they haven't really looked at the script and then they tell you that the line doesn't work but you realise it's because they haven't actually learned it so now they're trying to bullshit their way out of it. And I only had one who shall be nameless and it was not Ray Fiennes, it was not any of our big leads who, oh, so sorry, there's a blah, 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 and the whole crew and everyone's going, yeah, it's very funny, isn't it? Jesus, I'm not going to make my day. And the other actors are feeling that too. So all I will say is that you know all of our major players had were absolutely professional. So totally you prepared. are rehearsing, or mm. are you? I rehearse. Do you do like formal this. rehearsal, or do you do deep character study? How how do you? It's how a great you, question. And I'll try and answer it quickly. So we didn't get much rehearsal time. We got zero rehearsal time with Ray Fines. He showed up, 
we got on with the work. But we talked a lot beforehand. And what I learned from Did that... Did he study that guy? Yes. He, we set up meetings with, with Ben. Video? They went and met. Everyone, Kira met Catherine. Um, all the actors met their counterparts and spent time with him. So that's good research, right, in terms of the emotional... Connection. And they asked them questions. Lots of questions. About what they were going through, their, the psychology yep, of the psychology what they were of it. Doing. And then Rafe went to watch Ben. He, didn't, he couldn't watch Ben himself in court. He went to watch another um, court case. But he also spoke to the judge and he spent time with Ben. And Ben talked him through the case and talked him through That's him. how a British court is um, structured. You, the audience are at the. All the funny hairdos. It's all strange. Seemed like it was around the wrong way or a puzzle or something. No, that's how it was. Yeah. So the the, the, the jury and she really was in a glass door cage as really? if she would be shot at. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, we didn't use the exact courtroom because that's at the Old Bailey, so we used a courtroom in Liverpool that was empty. But there, there, this glass wall that was in front of her is, as if she, you know they put up these bulletproof glass things these days. I guess for some of these trials where gangs might come in. They had one in the Old Bailey where some gang member jumped over the balcony and tried to kill the guy in the witness box. And So the glass box is not a fake. Um, uh, but the rehearsal for me is mostly about going through the script so that on the day nobody is suggesting a line change. The rehearsal period is like, we're going to read through this entire script, we're going to read it together, I'll read the other parts. Let's, you know, if I, either, if I can't get the actors in the same room at the same time, which you often can't, I'll read it. Let's read every scene. Ask me any question about the scene now, where it's coming, why, what line. Let's make any changes we're going to do now because on the day there's going to be no time to do it. It means I don't get surprises. It also helps me test the writing before I get on the set because that's a shitty place to be testing the scene, right? So those rehearsal for me about that. But I have two requests I make of actors. And let's forget the heavy, the, the big actors. The things I love are the small roles. Because you know, Mark and I were watching the, the US Open earlier today before we came over, and you know, we were talking about this game of tennis. I you, thought you'd be watching the test cricket. No, the, the tennis. <laughs> well, um, but the tennis, you know, you're only as good as your opponent, and what's exciting for an audience or a crowd is when you've got two equally matched people playing tennis. Well, movies are actually not that different. If I put Kira Knightley, and she's great, in a scene where some actor has three lines but they're crap, that's just a bad tennis match, right? So f the fun for me is casting all the small parts. And I take half an hour to 45 minutes on small roles where people come in and we read and go again and read and go again. Because I need, for the moment you're looking, and this should be obvious, I suppose, for the moment you're looking at that face that has two lines, it's a cliche to say that they're the lead, but you're on them. They drop the ball. Now we collectively have to pick the ball up. So... I'm very proud of moments where the guard pats her down and that young, that, that young actress's performance that's so... The judge is ready, come through. These little moments that allow Kira to be good too, if she was bad. So, I, so what I ask of actors, and you don't normally have to tell this to professionals, but often less experienced actors, I need two things out of you. Sounds trite. Please know your lines perfectly, but do not work perfectly on how you're going to say them. Know where you are emotionally as you walk into the scene, because... You have to enter the scene with what's happened before. This should all be trite, but it isn't to some actors. Um, know where you are emotionally as you enter the scene. So the first serve in the tennis match comes from a real place, whatever that mood is. But watch the other actor for the tennis game. You know, you've practiced your... I'm talking about Wolverine. I had this with a certain actor. It wasn't Hugh. It was someone who came to do this work with Hugh who had not acted before. He was a big singer. You'll work it out if you like. Bless his socks. He'd practice his lines the night before. 
in the mirror clearly. And no matter what Hugh Jackman did, his response came out the same. And I had to shut the set down and take this person away and say, I'm just going to play a simple game. Hello, how are you? Your lines, I'm fine, thank you. If I say, hello, how are you? That's one stimulus. But if I say, hello, how are you? That's a totally different stimulus. Oh, how interesting. It's amazing how sometimes like the most obvious thing you think from actors is not obvious. And so for me, it's about saying, come in the room and be alive to the other performer. Take all the pressure off yourself. Watch Kira. Because a lot of those smaller parts, they're nervous. And I think that my job is to help those parts so that Kira is playing tennis with someone who's in the right place. That was long-winded, sorry. So um, It's pretty obvious, I know. But Having made two studio pitches with, um, that were not necessarily the, the most happy uh, two years of your life, um, and then two completely independent films yeah. where you owned the film yeah. and were totally in control mm. um, and made all the decisions from beginning to end, mm. what next? <laughs> Catherine. Um, what next, Catherine? Oh, I do love this man. Um, oh, I want to interview you so badly one day, Phil. He just never lets me, you know. He does these. He's done this for me before. <laughs> um, Phil, you know, because we've talked about this. I mean, you're always in the fine line between can I get the film funded? I've, I've had projects that I'm really passionate about that just can't get the money for. Um, then you get offered stuff. Stuff comes in every week, right? And some of it's great and but a lot of it isn't. Would you step into the possibility of I having just, to fight for your, I know fight what for I your freedom? I know what I wouldn't do now. I'm not doing something where the script isn't done. I mean, it sounds trite, but I'm not. You know, you can ju it's just too much pain. So if I don't feel a strong connection to that material and the material isn't ready, either we're going to get it ready or we're not, we just can't, you can't sign on to something where you don't feel safe with your foundation. I mean, the script is your foundation. So what are you looking so at right the, now? So me, for me, it's very simple. I am writing a couple of things myself. I get scripts sent to me frequently. I and the Sky I did not write. It came to me. I worked with Guy for about three or four months on the script afterwards, but it's his script. Um, there are others where I've co-written. What happened on this one is there was a version, and then it was the movie fell apart, and it was sent to me. So I'm open to anything that is a great story that you feel you can actually direct well, I suppose. Um, it's not actually fun struggling for money. It's really hard. This was a difficult film to make because, you know, we thought at one point, yay, we're going to go and film in England. We'll be in London. We'll be in all the places where it happened. There's no money to shoot in London. London's too expensive. So we're doubling London in Manchester, Liverpool and Leeds. So nothing is simple. But, but arguably rendition, Sotsi, I in the Sky um, and this, I in the Sky and this film world. are your films. Yeah, they're my films. They're your best films. Well, thanks, Phil. And, uh, and they, they're all striking because they express your personality and, and your worldview. But this, that's unfortunately what we are when we're best as directors. You know, we're, I think we're best when we express our worldview and our feeling and our history and then in I, some way. I so, noticed yeah. that you've uh, also uh, uh, struck out to television uh, in the golden age of television. Um, can you tell us about that? Well, I don't have a lot to say about that. I mean, Eye in the Sky has, has a show being developed based on it, which would be great. Um, I don't know. You know, we're in the process. Um, but you I directed did, some, some I episodes. did some television early on. You know, um, I did a small show. But I, again, I learned a lot. 
Um, it was a show that ran for a few seasons. I was a director for high on that. The writers were great. They were in control. You know how television works. It was my learning curve of going, oh, here my job is really to deliver for these writers. It's not my show. Television in that world was the producer-writer was king, and that's great. Um, so I feel now about television that there's some two television projects that I'm writing myself that allows me to be... To, to make them more my own. In the television that I did, a show called Breakout Kings, um, that was really um, Nick and Matt's show and, and their writing and their voice. And I hope I did a good job for them as a craftsman executing on a job. And I learned a lot about how television works. But it's their voice. It's, I, I can't claim that as my voice, right? My voice is, I don't know what my voice is. Well, uh, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you, Phil. Um, as I said, the, the style of directing was totally in step with the subject and the character, thanks. so you've done it again. It's a small it's a film, movie, but, but as Jeffrey Wells said in, uh, in uh, Hollywood Elsewhere after it premiered at, um, at, at um, uh, Sundance, Sundance yeah. you know, this is an extraordinary film uh, in its, and has uh, an inbuilt strength in its dignity in the way that it attacks the story. It's very generous Thank you. Of you Thank you, mate. That's very generous of you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Laureen Scafaria and Michael Engler. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.